Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. Hey, it's a gift to be with you all the way from New York City. It's my first time in Portland. Uh, what a place. The coffee is awesome. I mean, I think I, I'm supposed to say that, but it's just awesome coffee in Portland. Uh, truly a gift to be with you. As Tyler mentioned, I have the great privilege of pastoring New Life Fellowship Church in Queens. I've been there for 15 years and the lead pastor for the last uh, 10 years. It was started by a guy named Pete Scazzaro 37 years ago. Uh, in Queens, and uh, it's a place where I have learned a lot about justice and reconciliation. Uh, National Geographic has said that our zip code where our church gathers for worship is the most diverse zip code in the world, where 123 nations, uh, languages are spoken in the neighborhood, with 75 nations represented in our community. And I've learned a lot over the years around justice and uh, reconciliation, and I'm excited to dive into that. Uh, I am so grateful for your pastor, Tyler. Uh, what a gift he is to me and to the body of Christ. And a few years ago when he was discerning whether to come to Portland, we had a few conversations, and uh, what a gift you've received on this side of our country uh, in Tyler. And so I, we miss him in Brooklyn, but you are so blessed to have him over here. And so I'm grateful to be with you today and on Tuesday and excited to dive into this text today. I'm going to focus on reconciliation, and that word has lots of application and implications for our lives. I'm going to focus primarily on the racial ethnic dynamics of that, although I'll integrate some other things, but that's where I want to go today. And so would you pray with me? Can we ask the Holy Spirit to breathe on us? as we look to scripture and we open our, ours, my, our eyes and our hearts and our ears to what Jesus wants to do in this community. And so, Lord, thank you for the gift of your presence, the gift of worship, the gift of song, the gift of community, the gift of friendship, the gift of holy scripture. And now I pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive all you have for us this day. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, and everyone said. Amen. The comedian Emo Phillips once wrote a joke about divisions among Christians. He said, I was walking across a bridge one day, and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. And so I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he asked. Well, there's so much to live for. Like what, he responded. Well, are you religious? He said, yes. I said, me too. 
are you Christian or are you Buddhist? He said, Christian. I said, me too. Are you Catholic or are you Protestant? He said, Protestant. I said, well, me too. Are you Episcopalian or are you Baptist? He said, Baptist. Wow. Me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or a Baptist Church of the Lord? He said, Baptist Church of the Lord. He said, me too. Are you original Baptist Church of the Lord or are you reformed Baptist Church of the Lord? He said, reformed Baptist Church of the Lord. He said, me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of the Lord, Reformation of 1879, or Reformed Baptist Church of the Lord, Reformation of 1915? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God of the Lord, Reformation of 1915. And I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. (laughs) Amen. That little anecdote captures much of the divisiveness that exists in our culture, that exists in the church, that we know how to divide over the small stuff. And if that's true about the small stuff, if I can use a nice biblical phrase, how much more do we divide over the big stuff? And we don't have to use our imagination because it's before us every single day. There's fragmentation in our culture. There's fragmentation in our churches. There's fragmentation in our families, which is why we need a fresh understanding of what the gospel really is. Because the gospel is at work in our world to mend that which is fractured. The gospel is at work in our world to heal the things that are messed up in our world. We need a fresh perspective of the gospel. When we understand the gospel as simply a privatized individual thing, it actually becomes permissible to not focus on the larger realities of our society. It's easy to think that if the gospel is fundamentally about forgiveness of sins, a beautiful and glorious thing, if it's simply about forgiveness of sins, then there's no need to care about justice. There's no need to care about reconciliation. If the gospel is simply about this post-mortem experience, where you go when you die, it actually becomes quite permissible not to focus on the things on earth. But what if the gospel was more than just forgiveness of sins, that beautiful reality? What if the gospel was more than just this post-mortem age to come? What if the gospel was about something more? And I believe that the gospel is about something more. The gospel is not simply about forgiveness of sins. The gospel is simply not about going to heaven when you die. The gospel is the good news that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ. And that in his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. And if that's the starting point of our gospel, wherever there is death and wherever there is sin... It is the church's responsibility to partner with the Spirit of God to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And you could argue that the primary fruit of the gospel is a new humanity, a new family, a new community. And this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians, he's trying to let the church know the powerful good news of the gospel. 
That the gospel is not simply for our individual lives, and the gospel is not simply this privatized religion, but there's something that has massive ramifications for the world we inhabit. And when you look at the logic of the book of Ephesians, it's actually pretty powerful to see the multiple points of application in our lives. When I became a Christian in 1999, the first book that someone gave me, a woman by the name of Miriam, gave me a book by the Chinese missionary, Watchman Nee, called Sit, Walk, Stand, which gives the logic of the book of Ephesians. That Paul talks about three different aspects of our relationship to God. He says that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's where the gospel begins. We sit in Christ. But our gospel is to extend out of that where we walk in him. That's Ephesians chapter 4. And then Ephesians chapter 6 is we stand against powers and principalities. And that's the order. If you think you can stand against powers and principalities without being seated first in Christ Jesus, we're going to be in for a rude awakening. But if we can be seated in Christ and give expression to that, uh, that truth in our day-to-day existence, then we have something to stand against. Paul is saying we are called to sit with Christ first and foremost. It's a beautiful truth that he gets at. And when we begin to see what, how Paul unpacks this, we begin to see the larger logic of the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that you were dead in your transgressions, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of this kingdom of the air, the spirit, who is at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But Paul continues, but because of his great love for us, amen, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when you were dead in your transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated him, us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Beautiful, beautiful words. Paul lets us know flat out that the problem with the human condition is not that we are simply morally inconsistent people. The problem with the human condition is not that we have good days and then we have bad days. Paul is letting us know that the problem of the human condition is that we are dead and need to be made alive. Which is why the gospel, it's been said that the gospel is not simply good news, that that bad people can become good and good people can become better. The good news of the gospel is that dead people can come alive. Amen. And so Paul lets us know that something has happened in Jesus Christ. We have been made alive in him. We now have access to the Father. We now have been made whole. We are set free. We are forgiven. We have been rescued. In another part of the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, we get this this picture of us having access to God through a wonderful image. 
Where in the temple, there was this massive curtain that separated the people of God from the holies of holies. And when Jesus Christ died, the curtain was torn in two. And now we have access, free access, to come boldly to the throne of God. This is good news. We can come boldly to the Father. Enter into his presence. Paul is letting us know in Ephesians, and the writer of Hebrews lets us know that we have access to God, and we can come boldly to receive all the full privileges of sons and daughters of the living God. But that's not the end of the salvation story. Paul is letting us know that the salvation story has this vertical dimension to it, but it also has this horizontal dimension to it. And when salvation is simply about our own individualized relationship with God, we cheapen what the gospel really is. And so Paul lets us know it is possible that curtains can come down and we have access to God and functionally we still live with walls built up against one another. We can have curtains come down and walls yet built up. And yet, what Paul is getting at is that the cross is not simply this privatized thing. The cross is not simply a bridge that gets us to God. The cross is a sledgehammer that tears down walls that separate us. It's very easy to see uh, in these tracts that people used to give out that God is on one side, humanity's on the other. There's this massive chasm that separates us. And then the cross is seated right there, put in the center, and you can walk over to get to God. It's a cute image, but that's not the fullness of the gospel. The fullness of the gospel is that we have access to God. The curtain has come down and walls have come down in his name as well. What God is after, brothers and sisters, is a people, a new people, a new community, a new humanity, a new family. In Christ Jesus, God has made a way for those who were separated to be joined together. In Christ Jesus, God has done away with the laws that used to keep people at a distance from one another. In Christ Jesus, God makes it possible now for us to relate to one another in a new way. And yet there's still a problem that remains. The problem that remains is that sin is still at work. And just because we have seen diversity in various spaces doesn't mean that the kingdom of God has come in its power. This is what I'm reminded of as a pastor. As a pastor in a church that has lots of different people represented there, I am keenly aware that we could see diversity as the primary fruit that Jesus is trying to get at in the gospel. But you could be in a diverse space and not have the gospel at work. This church can grow in greater diversity and the gospel not be at work because you can find diversity in a lot of different places. Just because a place is diverse doesn't mean God is at work there, which is why I tell our congregation that we are called to be more than just a sanctified subway car. A subway car in New York City is a crowd of diverse people, anonymous diverse people in close proximity to each other. And we have to be more than just a subway car. As a matter of fact, if we look at diversity as the end goal, we're going to find ourselves coming short of what the gospel demands of us. Diversity is never to be the end goal. It's new family. It's solidarity. It's love. It's justice. It's reconciliation. And this is what Paul is trying to help us 
to see that something has happened in Jesus Christ. And yet what I've discovered is this is very difficult to live out. Partly because of our definition of what reconciliation is. Reconciliation can often be limited to aesthetics as opposed to the deep penetrating work of the Spirit. Reconciliation must have multiple points of application. We can't talk about reconciliation without talking about it in its individual, interpersonal, and institutional realities. That we have to talk about it among a whole lot of different categories and a whole lot of different relationships because the gospel's power wants to touch every facet of human existence. This is why one of the most helpful definitions of reconciliation that I've heard comes from uh, uh, Brenda Salta McNeil, in which she says these wonderful words, that reconciliation is the ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. And so if that is a wonderful, which it is, summary of what reconciliation is, how do we know? What does it look like to see walls coming down? How do we know Bridgetown Church? How do you know individually as a follower of Jesus that walls are coming down? And what I want to do is just offer a few signposts of the gospel breaking in into our lives. The gospel breaking in into this community in a deeper way. Five signposts that the walls are coming down. The first is this. To be a community that continues to dive deeper into this deep gospel conviction means that we must normalize the complexity of being this new family. Could you imagine Jews and Gentiles getting together in the first century? was not an easy thing. And unless we are normalizing the complexity of this gospel value, we will find ourselves escaping whenever conflict emerges. As a matter of fact, if I, to be in a congregation in which there's no conflict is a congregation that's actually built on falsehood. Because everywhere you go, there's gonna be conflict. Whenever a married couple comes to me or a dating couple and they say, can we get some help? And I go, tell me about your conflict. We don't really have any conflicts. Well, 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 discover what they are and come back to me because somebody's lying. It's complicated to be a new family. It's complicated to get different people in the room. I argue with myself. I disagree with myself. It is common that this is to happen. And what often happens is whenever the, whenever the going gets rough, to talk about matters of race, to talk about matters of justice, whenever people get emotionally triggered and anxiety begins to surface, that's when lots of folks start heading for the exits. But a community that's marked by reconciliation normalizes the complexity of this, which is to say that if we're working towards this value at some point on the journey, someone's not going to be happy. At some point, I experience this every Christmas. Every Christmas, we read the, the story of Jesus in multiple languages. Well, when you have 123 languages in the neighborhood, that's a long service. Uh, and so 
And so we, we, I, we identify a few languages each year. And inevitably, someone comes up to me after the service and says, Pastor Rich, I haven't heard my language. When's my language going to come up? And I go, well, listen, we're in 2018. Your language is set to come in 2024, okay? Work with me here. At some point, someone is not going to be happy. And we must normalize the complexity of being this new family. This is not just around racial realities. It's around political realities as well. Do you remember 2020? Um, <laughs> in 2020, I received an email in the month of October, one month before the election. I made the mistake of looking at my, I know you don't do this, but I made the mistake of looking at my email around 10.30 at night. And so... Um, some of you have done that before. And so the subject said, great idea. And so I thought, how bad can this be? <laughs> it was from one of our pastors. Great idea. And so I click on the link, and one of our pastors says, hey, Rich, you know, the election is about one month away. I have a great idea. What if we identify two people in our community, one who's voting for Trump, and the other who's voting for Biden, and let's have them be in a conversation before our congregation on Zoom before everyone. And so I saw the email. I gave it some thought, and with great courage and pastoral faith, I said, Hell no, we're not going to do this. Are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? What kind of church you think this is? Now, my predecessor is a guy who's written a lot about emotional health and stuff like that. She said, I thought we were like the emotionally healthy church. I was like, that's when he was leading this thing. It's a new day. We're not doing it. She said, pray about it. I said, just did. I just did. We're not, we're not doing it. A couple of days later, she says, have you thought about it? I said, oh, yes, I have. we're not doing it. And then she said, I think we should do it. And, and I guess God just did something in my soul because I said, all right, uh, who, who do you have? She said, we can do, get two elders to do this. I said, even worse, this is going to be really, really bad. We decided to go ahead with it. And some of you are groaning right now. And, and, I, and we identified... Uh, a Puerto Rican man in his 60s who was voting for Biden and a Korean-American man in his 50s who was voting for Trump. And this was going to be moderated by an African-American millennial guy because that's how we do it in Queens. And, 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 and I never forgot the day. I got into my bedroom because it's 2020. I opened up my laptop and I'm thinking this is my last week as the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship Church. And I'm thinking, what a bad idea. Why did I say yes to this? But I did what pastors do. We lie. I pressed start video, and I said, praise the Lord, everyone. Don't you feel the presence of God here? Aren't you glad you came? Aren't you glad? Now, I'm anxious about it. I go, oh, no, so-and-so came. They're going to blow up the chat. This is going to be really bad. And here's what I want to say. I don't want to romanticize this. I don't want to sensationalize this because there were, very, there were lots of awkward moments over that 90-minute kind of conversation. And yet I saw God at work. 
There are fundamental differences around policy, fundamental differences about what makes for a flourishing world. But what I did see was humility. And what I did see was curiosity. And what I did see was the willingness to hear the stories to help us understand why we arrive at a particular place that we're at. And I'm not here to romanticize or idealize this thing, but I saw something of God at work, normalizing the complexity of being this new family. The gospel is big enough to break down the walls. And here's the question, friends. If the gospel can only break down walls that we want to break down, if our communities simply become a mirror image of what we want, our own values, the things that matter most to us, is the gospel truly at work in our world? The gospel can be self-referential. We can look at the church and look at the world in ways that prioritize and center what we want and keep us away from any kind of complexity or discomfort. And yet Paul is saying Jew and Gentile, talk about significant differences, have been made whole in Jesus Christ. And so in order to move forward, friends, to have this conversation means we're not always going to be comfortable and this thing is going to get complicated. And yet God is at work among us. But this also invites us, secondly, how do we know that the gospel is breaking in? Not just out there, but in here. But secondly, because we begin to explore our own racial formation. The degree to which we explore our racial formation will position us to truly embody the good news of the gospel. At our church, we like to say that Jesus might live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. Which is a way of saying that we have been shaped positively and negatively by our families of origin. That our families of origin have given us positive legacies to pursue and negative legacies that we are called to reject. But the degree to which we examine the ways that we have been racially formed, and all of us have been racially formed to one degree or another, to the point that we can be honest with that. It's the degree to which the gospel can truly break through in our lives. This is why uh, from time to time in our community, I offer this inventory of connecting our own families of origin to our conceptions of race, to the ways that we have been socialized. I want to briefly, we'll talk some more, more about this on Tuesday, but I want to briefly hold it before you because maybe the spirit of God wants to do some work in us to get us more in touch with what's going on in our own souls. When I think about our, our racial formation, here are some questions that come to mind. How did your family talk about these groups on the screen? Whether in spoken or unspoken ways, conscious or unconscious ways. How did your family talk about black people? How would your family think about white people, Latino, Hispanic people, Native American, Middle Eastern, Asian, Asian American? What are the stories? What are the scripts? What are the narratives, internalized or otherwise? that has so shaped your consciousness and socialized you in this particular world. The degree to which we actually are honest with these things is the degree to which the gospel's power can really break through in our lives. Who were you taught to fear and why? Who are the people you were taught were beneath you? What assumptions do you have? The gospel must be worked out individually interpersonally, and institutionally. How do you know that the gospel's at work? How do you know that this wall-breaking good news of Jesus 
is breaking through in our lives and our communities? Well, thirdly, we begin to lament and resist the ways that racial sins have shaped our world. Lament and resist. I was encouraged a couple of years ago by what Canada did. Canada, in September 30th, had its first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which was proposed by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as one of its 94 calls to action. And it said that this day was announced in June by the government as a day for all Canadians to listen and learn about the country's colonial history and the ongoing trauma caused by residential schools. This example is a, it's a national one, but the spirit of it is really important for us to hold on to. That unless we learn how to go back, we cannot go forward. And when we begin to see the resistance of people who do not want to look back, who do not want to honestly assess how we have been, how the past has shaped our future, we are in deep trouble. That we cannot understand our racial situation without considering the ongoing effects of Native American genocide, of slavery, of Jim Crow laws, of Chinese exclusion acts, of Japanese internment camps, and the ways that this has been the foundation for anti-Asian violence and racism and all the rest. That unless we learn how to look back, and see the ways that we've been shaped as a people and as individuals, we really can't move forward. How is the gospel at work? What does it mean for walls to come down, friends? Well, fourthly, it means that we practice repentance and forgiveness. The gospel's power is to make our hearts tender. And this is what I know to be true. It's very easy to have a commit, commitment to justice in such a way that is not reflective of the spirit of Jesus and the fruit of the spirit. I know a lot of people, I've, I've traveled around this country and been in many beautiful spaces and people who are committed to the work of justice and reconciliation. And what I've also seen is this. Someone can have a deep commitment to justice and be really mean. And the meanness kind of corrodes their, corrodes their soul. And it looks nothing like the tenderness of Jesus. I know lots of people who are anchoring their lives in justice, but are mean and angry. And at the same time, people who love to forgive but don't want to talk about the institutional realities of justice. And what we're invited into is to hold on to these both. How do we work for justice in such a way where our hearts remain tender? How do we work for reconciliation in such a way where we're cultivating the fruit of the Spirit? How do we work for things being made right in the name of Jesus, but not looking like Satan in the process? <laughs> Repentance. And forgiveness. Lastly, what does it mean for the gospel's power to break down walls in our lives, walls in our communities, walls in our nation? Well, it means as the church, 
we must cling to this good news that Jesus Christ is our peace. Jesus Christ is our peace. One of the, whenever I get asked, Rich, what are you hopeful about regarding the church? What gives you hope? And certainly I could share many things that gives me hope. But my typical response to that question is very simply this. What am I hopeful about the church? Here it is. I am hopeful because Jesus Christ is building his church. What am I hopeful about? Jesus' commitment to building the church. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus Christ is our peace. He is at work to this very day. And so, yes, we must work as much as we possibly can and work with compassion and with justice. But you know what I find great solace in? That Jesus Christ is at work to this very day. He is our peace. And I find great joy that Jesus is committed to seeing this world flourish and committed to seeing this world healed and committed to seeing this world reconciled. As a matter of fact, as personally, I've discovered this idea that Jesus holds things together in his own self through a, through a health battle I had in 2014. In 2014, I had lymphatic tuberculosis, and it took a number of months before I was actually diagnosed and, and had lots of existential dread. I had just become the new pastor in Queens, and I, I wondered, will I die within the next year? Will I see my child? My wife was pregnant at the time and found just despair. Will the church make it if I die? <laughs> The arrogance, you know what I'm saying? Well, the church, how will they survive without me? And then I came across a passage of scripture that has anchored me as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus. In my own dread and despair, I came across Colossians 1:17, which says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He, Jesus Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the one holding this thing together. It reminds me of this image in Manhattan. In Rockefeller Center, there's this wonderful statue of Atlas holding the world on his shoulders. And it's a picture of many of our lives. It's a picture of the church trying to struggle under the weight of the world's pressures. There's so much pain. There's so much need. There's so much that we must give ourselves to rightly in the name of Jesus. And yet it could feel crushing. It could feel, am I, are we really making a difference in the world? And the weight of the world can just crush us. But in that part of our city, there's this wonderful contrast and juxtaposition. Because while Atlas is holding the world on his shoulders, he's actually facing St. Patrick's Cathedral. It's this wonderful contrast. He's holding the world on his shoulders, carrying on his shoulders, and he's facing the church. But there's an even more delightful juxtaposition because inside of St. Patrick's Cathedral, behind the altar, there's another statue of five-year-old Jesus effortlessly holding the world 
in his hands. Kindergarten Jesus. Chicken nugget eating Jesus. Juice box sipping Jesus. Come on, church. Disney Junior watching Jesus. Just effortlessly holding the world in his hands. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Where is our faith? Our faith is in Jesus Christ. Where is our hope? Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Where is our confidence? Our confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Now it makes sense what Paul then says one chapter later. Because in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, a verse that many of us have memorized, it begins to make more sense. Paul says in one of my favorite passages, now unto him who can do amazing, abundantly more than we ask or think. We begin to see the context of what Paul is getting at here. Because when Paul says he can do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think, he's not referring to simply private blessings. He's writing about God's Abundant power to join people from mutually hostile histories into a new humanity, into a new family, into a new community. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. 